I have four kids ranging from 17 to 27, and none of them would answer anything that looked like a pre-1990 question. (laughs) And I think that that's the thing is that we as marketers have become so reliant on the trend data, we are really hesitant to disrupt it with a different question. Welcome to the Marketing Expedition Podcast, an auditory journey through the latest in marketing, branding, and advertising. Now, here's your Marketing Expedition Guide, Ray Allen. On this week's episode of the Marketing Expedition Podcast, I get to speak with Peter Schaefer, and he's the Vice President of Sales and Marketing at Everest Communications. Everest is a digital communications firm that provides counsel and program execution, support to companies in the areas of analytics, social media strategy, digital reputation repair. And having worked for prestigious polling organizations such as Gallup and Harris, as well as large global PR firms, Peter is the ideal person to shed light on how using data effectively can vastly improve your digital marketing campaigns. So let's talk with Peter, but first, let's go over the marketing essentials moments, the basics that you need to help you build your brand and your bottom line. And this week's topic, I want to cover speaking to sell, to be able to share your expertise. And then when you share your expertise and you share your value to your audience, it allows you to become the expert and people want to buy from you. So here's some tips in helping you in this marketing journey through speaking or presenting that have worked for me and could work for you. So first things first, know who your audience is going to be. Find out a little bit more about them. What is it that they're really most interested in hearing from you? And ask those questions even before you present to them. What do you want to know most about? Whatever the topic is that you're going to be presenting on. And then number two, practice and prepare for your audience. Be able to have your presentations ready to go. Make sure that you're there ahead of time to be able to have everything all set up so you don't have any tech problems or anything like that. And of course, practice. (laughs) Practice makes progress, right? Number three, share what your audience is going to learn from you. Tell them, then show them. Share and be sure to do what you say you're going to do. Up front, you want to know, they want to know what they're going to learn from you. So go ahead and share all that it is that you're going to cover and how much time you're going to take to do it. And that way they're prepared and then aren't surprised and are also understanding what you are going to do. And number four, ask for audience participation, engage them, ask those questions and allow them to converse with you. Of course, give them a time frame to stick to and say something like, in 30 seconds, can you tell me your answer to your whatever it is that you're saying, right? And that way they're not going to ramble on forever and take all of your time away, right? But having that two-way communication street really helps engage them and keeps them engaged. And if they know that they're going to be asked questions, then they might want to pay attention so that they're not called upon and have Uh, you know, deer in the headlight look to be able to do that. So, and then of course, redirect if somebody is needing to take a long time to explain what it is, you can have a conversation with them after your presentation and share with them, oh, this seems like a, a conversation that we can have afterwards and I can dig into it a little bit further or maybe we can meet up and do that. And that way, again, they're not taking all of your precious time that you have on stage away from you. Number five, personalize your presentation, tell stories, share some examples or case studies, exemplify your expertise and share all of those experiences that you've had before. And that will help to showcase what it is that you know. 
And number six, tonality and personality. Projecting your voice, using humor when it's appropriate, those pregnant pauses for additional added effect, and then repeat a quotable moment to emphasize a critical point. Repeat a critical moment, right? Repeat that so that people can let it absorb and sink in and even tweet about it, right? They'll quote you and they'll tweet it out there using your hashtag that you share and supply, right? Fluctuate your voice. Vibrato when you're excited and passionate about the topic. And then maybe just the opposite when you want to evoke emotion and, and have empathy and compassion, right? So just thinking about how you can use your tone of voice and your personality to really uh, make sure that they are grasping what you're wanting to share with them. Number seven, don't read from your slides. Follow an outline, but don't read from those slides. Make sure that your slides only have about five words or phrases or less, they're there to be a visual aid to support what you're saying. It will really distract your audience if they're just trying to read everything that you have on a slide. You're not there to read a novel, right? You're not there to just read off your slides. And, and when, when people have to read the slides and they're not actually actively listening to you and what you have to say. So remember, the slides are there just as a visual aid to help you in, in being able to continue on with your topics and having that outline to follow. So that way you're not having just a canned presentation. You're more authentic when you can tell those stories and share, right? Number eight, close with a dynamic and memorable ending. Some sort of call to action or whatever the next steps that you want your audience to take away from your presentation. And then of course, how they can follow up with you and your team or, or your cause or whatever it is that you want them to do. But answer what is next for them and why. And then you can use things like QR codes, surveys, handouts, um, and then plan to stay after your presentation to meet and greet and get appointments set to use a booking calendar is so helpful because you can make it quick and easy. I actually have a QR code on the back of my business card that links directly to my booking calendar so people can get 15 minute time slots with me on one-on-one, -on -one, and then we can see if there's more that we can do for them in the future. And number 10, remember, practice makes progress. <laughs> My grandma used to say practice makes perfect, but I'm saying practice makes progress. And if you want more additional information or help or ideas that I can help you with in your presentation, feel free to reach out to me. You can go to peppershock.com Ray-book to book time with me. And Ray is spelled R-H-E-A. So peppershock.com slash Ray-book and get your 15 minutes on my calendar and we could talk about how we can do things like this for you and with you to support you in your presentation to speak to sell. And now it's time to get into our interview. Let's go. Welcome to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. I'm your host, Ray Allen. I'm the president and CEO of Peppershock Media and the founder of the Marketing Expedition Community. And today's guest, we have Peter Schaefer with us. Welcome, Peter. Hi, Ray. How are you doing? Great to be with you today. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, and you're you're calling from Baltimore today. I am. I am. Excellent. Yes. Excellent. So uh, East Coast, West Coast kind of thing going on here. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think we've covered the continent now, so that's yep. good. We're good. We're good. 
And really, we wanted to talk to you more about data analysis and collection and then getting into what you're going to do with it once you've collected it. So just uh, share a little bit. And, and of course, why don't you first start off giving us a little bit of your background, kind of how you got into this and, and why uh, this is so fascinating to you and what uh, what gives us what gives you the right to be able to talk about all of this, Peter? <laughs> well, I, I will try to maybe justify the right to be able to do that. But um, I, it, across my career, I've actually had two specific career paths. One has been in uh, public polling and market research, where it's a lot of data collection and then using that data for consumer insights or even things like political elections and, and those types of um, uh, uses of data. And then the second part has been on the communication side, and that has been the, the coupling of how do you communicate about the data that you collect and the insights that you find, but also how you get media to cover those and then what, what it means to have it publicly available out there in regard to how it's being used, where it's being placed, how people are making decisions off of it, those types of things. So I've worked on, um, you know, political, you know, some political campaigns where the data is, you know, used to uh, test advertising, messaging. Um, now I'm in the digital space more, so it's a whole different level of data because of the amount of internet traffic and amount of social media traffic. So, yeah. you know, my quite frankly, my passion about it is just being curious about how consumers and how all different types of audiences change and, and transform seemingly on a daily basis or, you know, about their impressions about what's going on or how they share their feelings or emotions or even their opinions about what's going on. So, you know, I, I like that nexus point between what that data is or how that data is collected and then what that data means and then how to communicate that data. Wow. Yeah, I think uh, you've done a good job of qualifying yourself. Good job. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, I mean, let's, let's dig in a little bit more in kind of the ways that people can collect what they need in order to make those decisions in their marketing, right? And, and you're right, the digital space is just, there's an exuberant amount of ways to collect data and, and then just being able to analyze it. So tell me more about kind of some ways that you've used in the past that have been really successful in being able to collect what people need. Yeah, it's, it's a great question, Ray. And I think you just touched on something that I, I don't think marketers and I don't think even data professionals appreciate, and that is just the sheer, absolute, crazy amount of data that's out there already. And that, that you know, the, the real puzzle right now is piecing together these different data points and data sets that you collect, whether it's from, you know, social media sources, whether it's from internet traffic, whether it's from polling research, whatever it is, and, and, and piecing it together into um, a a mechanism that you can then interpret the data on. So, you know, right now, for example, the three primary ways companies are collecting data, one is, you know, traditional market research where they're going out to different audiences, asking questions, taking that, the answers to those questions, turning it into data, um, and, and then putting those data points together into either a marketing plan, a sales plan, whatever, whatever it would be, pricing, new pricing options. Um, the second way is really unstructured data, and they're about probably 80% of the world's data is unstructured, where it's just kind of all over the place, and it's coming in from transactional data. Mm -hmm. um, or commentary that's collected off of websites or off of social media. So if you post something on Instagram about your favorite brand, that technically is unstructured data because you then have to structure it in once you get it to fit into your model. And, and then the third is the hard statistics that do come from 
uh, all the different platforms that that are either being used or monitored or, or things like that. So that would be, those things would be categorized like, you know, how many likes you have on Facebook or how many, you know, uh, posts on LinkedIn or how many, you know, um, uh, you know, uh, likes on, you know, various websites. So each one of these sets of data, those are the main primary data sets that, that most companies, um, regardless of how big or how small use um, on a pretty daily basis. Um, Again, the issue has been how to put those together and how to um, actually decide who is going to put those together. Because what I found in many, many companies, um, and especially uh, larger organizations, is that different departments own different types of data. And there is not as much data sharing across those departments as one would maybe imagine. Um, so, in fact, I was talking about this with a group of university presidents uh, a couple months ago, is that, you, you know, when you've got admissions data over here and you've got alumni data over here and you've got financial data over here and whatever, it, you know, those groups have to come together to talk or at least come up with some you know, plan to share that data. And that doesn't happen. So oftentimes decisions are made in vacuums or silos because of that. And I think that's the biggest struggle is just, you know, who owns the data internally, how that data gets shared, and then what purpose, um, you know, maybe the IT department serves in both protecting that data, but also making that data available on, uh, on demand for other groups. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right because, you know, I just see a world of spreadsheets everywhere or, you know, other tools that yeah. people use to, to understand and collect it. But then if you're not sharing it and you don't have information that other departments do, then how do you use that to your advantage if you don't have access to it or don't realize that they even are collecting something that could be useful to you? And I can see how that could really inhibit people from being able to do what they need to do. Well, and, and you know, one of the simple ways, Ray, that, that you know, companies are, are trying to make this work is that... Um, the great part of technology is that it's been able to automate transactional information. So if you're, you know, a retail store or you, you know, there's just gobs and gobs of data that you can get off just a single transaction. Um, if you marry that with then, you know, customer sentiment or information from market research that you're collecting, you know, it, it becomes a very, very powerful data set in regard to making decisions on pricing, on promotions, on, you know, different marketing aspects. Um, and oftentimes that, that by the time that those two things come together, opportunities can either be missed or opportunities for, you know, making and an, an improving customer loyalty um, are missed. And that's the, that's, I think the part that um, is both exciting, but also exasperating to people is that they, they can see that that would be a great use of it, but they're exasperated to trying to get it together. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about customer sentiment, because I think that is sort of the answer to being able to say, well, I don't know, you know, if my marketing is working or if my branding is, is you know, doing any good, right? And, and yeah. sentiment scoring, let's, let's dig into that a little bit more, because I think that that sure. could be something useful to our audience to understand how it works, how you go about it, what you can track, how you can track it. Share a little more about uh, sentiment scoring. Yeah. And, you know, that's a great question, Ray. Two things. One is that um, I think if you would talk to a lot of market researchers and data scientists, that the, the, the idea of sentiment is, is almost a holy grail, is that if we could really, really measure that accurately, we would be on to something really, uh, you know, just absolutely uh, terrific. Um, there are different types of ways to measure sentiment that people are experimenting with. Um, but again, one of the 
difficulties with sentiment data is that it is oftentimes unstructured. And so it takes a little bit of time to structure it. But, you know, and by the time you get it structured, it might already be out of date. Um, one of the things that I, you know, and I know, you know, back 10 years ago, when the word cloud came out, that was, you know, kind of brilliant in regards yeah. to, you know, sentiment. And, and even today, it's still a very usable and, and certainly a valuable tool for- I love, I love word clouds. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, the, the, the next level, I think, in, in at least what I'm seeing in terms of the metrics is a consistency around some of those sentiments and, and now building data sets and databases around those particular sentiments. So for example, you know, if, if, there, there could be a complete data set around satisfaction. There could be a complete data set around loyalty. There could be, you know, um, uh, around engagement. So these keywords and terms, I, you know, now that there's enough data to start really allowing for these models to be built, that's where sentiment is th starting to play an, an even bigger role. And so the modeling is based on all this data and, and quite frankly, the modeling is fairly new um, and it's still being, you know, kind of ironed out, but a lot of the modeling and the algorithms that are based or, or, or that are part of that modeling are getting much more accurate. The other part too, and we talked about this earlier in terms of data collection, the ability to collect that data is much, much easier now than it was even five years ago. And in fact, you've got a situation where um, consumers are volunteering that data versus being asked that data. And that has become, I think, the real challenge for many of the, the marketing people um, and the, the people that work with the data is really trying to figure out how much unsolicited data we want and then how much solicited data we want in that sentiment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I know, for example, that a, a many, many, many companies have online communities where they have certain sets of customers in, uh, in those data sets. And they use that group, that community um, as a way to really get deeper into sentiment so they can take the kind of more general population data and bring it up to the what they would consider whoever there is in that community and usually that's really loyal and, and highly engaged customers um, and test out those pieces of data using the sentiment from that group of say 2500 or 5000 or even even a less than a thousand I, I worked on one that was a thousand moms who bought mm -hmm. a particular brand um, and the, the response rates were really, really, I mean, it was, you know, 70 to 80% on almost every project. So yeah. you've, you've got this really, really well-defined audience and they know and understand your product. And so that sentiment, it becomes a, it becomes a very valuable tool. Um, the other thing too, is that the sentiment measures or sentiment measures are getting more easily, uh, What's the word? Connected, if I could, you know, so, so when you look at sentiment, there's almost a, um, a ladder, a laddering or a pyramid of, you know, questions that you can get to that will lead you to an ultimate sentiment. And I think that the more and more um, the modeling is, is based on that is, okay, here's the baseline sentiment. Here's that next level sentiment. Here's that third level. And it's that third level that it, it really addresses, you know, that, that mm -hmm. emotional need versus th just that basic need. Right. And I think that it's definitely going beyond just a, on a scale of one to 10, how likely would you be to refer us again? Or, you know, there's, there's right. so much more to it now and using those words and, and having the ability to have first party data as opposed to third party, which third party data is so hard to come by. And, you know, you've got yeah. all these rules and cookie rules and all the things. And so it's hard to get 
get that now. So if you get first party data coming directly from the consumer, then it's it's more valuable, right? Absolutely. And, and you know, that, that I, I, and I think you realize this, um, or you just touched on it there for a second, is that I, I don't think companies really woke up to the idea of how important their first party data was until about five yeah. or six years ago. And they're like, oh, hey, you know, this, this is, you know, and I, I think to your point, um, because of the availability of third party data, that was the default posture five or six years ago. Now it's, I think, especially with the first party data that's available to most of the companies out there is that let's work through our first company or first party data first. Let's Mm -hmm. see even if we can get second party data, but that third party data is more either a support mechanism or it helps us interpret where we stand in the bigger, in the bigger uh, environment. Right. And I have seen more and more where just even simple surveys get dismissed. They get lost in an inbox. And it's harder now to, to sometimes get that information, get the, your customers to, to do a survey, right? And so you yes, have to come up really with ways. It, well, and, and you know, so this is, uh, I'm, the math is probably, you know, old now, but um, back in, uh, I, I used to work for Gallup Poll. And back in the day, they could get one, at one out of six phone calls would lead to a completed survey, which meant, you know, poll. So you would have to make 6,000 phone calls to get a hundred, or I'm sorry, a thousand responses. Now that number is really, really high. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not as easy. About 45% of all surveys are completed on a mobile device now. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's even a bias towards the, you know, the survey questions that are so long, if I'm looking on my mobile device and I see that it's a long question, I'm just going to disconnect and go, regardless of whether I'm a loyal employee or not. Mm-hmm. The third is that we're, we're still asking the questions that we were using in the 1990s yeah. for the 2020s. And quite frankly, um, you know, I, I have four kids ranging from 17 to 27, and none of them would answer anything that looked like a pre-1990 question. <laughs> and I think that that's the thing is that we as marketers have become so reliant on the trend data, we are really hesitant to disrupt it with a different question. Um, I remember we were talking about this uh, a couple of years ago when I was working for another polling company. Um, and there was some statistical data that said I statements were better than questions, because if you have to answer, I will do this, or I am loyal to X or whatever, it, it brings a different level of ownership to, mm-hmm. versus, you know, um, uh, I, you know, you here, you know, at a scale of one to 10, how loyal are you? Um, and so I, you know, I, I think there hopefully is a shift now towards asking better questions that do two particular things. One is make it a lot easier for people to answer and also to look on a phone and be able to say, yeah, I can, I can, I can do this really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is that it will actually reveal what the sentiment is versus some numerical representation of that sentiment. Um, because I think, you know, um, we used to joke about this in, um, in polling is that if you ask anybody how their marriage is or how their partnership is, you know, you're always going to get a five. Um, you know, it's, if, it's, if you answer the four that your spouse goes crazy or your partner goes crazy, it's like, why did you <laughs> yes. give me a five? Yeah. And, and I think, you know, and I think that's, that sometimes the scaling just doesn't match the intensity of the sentiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's the part that I think is getting better and better. Um, but again, to your point, um, you know, when you're looking on a mobile device or, you know, you get this survey that's 15 minutes, it's just like, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm out at eight. And I'm done. Mm-hmm. 
you know, but but I will say two things about the the, the survey part that I think you know are, are you know things are getting better. Um, number one is I think that people are responding a lot better to specific brand asks about a particular situation. So, for example, if if I get um, you know something about Gatorade, for example, mm-hmm. um, and and I you know I that's you know drink that that you know, might be some, you know, I, I might be more apt to ask, answer that. Or if I get an invitation from, you know, another retail brand that I shop at, um, if I get something that's a little bit vague or a little bit less, um, you know, obvious, um, I'm probably less likely to do it. And I think that some of the rules around the um, blinding of those surveys are changing so that, you know, it, it, there's really not that much bias if you call me and say, hey, can you do a survey on Gatorade? For example, um, it, it doesn't signal that you know that 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 there's any inherent bias in that selection. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's a good point because people might be more willing to do a survey if it's something that they are passionate about or believe or you know they're familiar with or it's you know something they've heard of. But if it's never anything that they've heard of, why would they bother? You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or or you know to your point, and I think it's a good one, Ray, is that um, you know sometimes when you read the survey invitations or the the survey invitation pops into your inbox, um, it's the ambiguity of it is enough to make you kind of set, toss it aside. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Benchmark One is an email marketing automation and CRM software that saves you time. It has drip campaigns, autoresponders, built-in email marketing tools, landing pages, pop-ups that help you really create that stellar buying experience with your customers. You can really simplify and get back to doing what you do best, running your own business. So email marketing is not a new concept, but if you haven't found one that works for you, give Benchmark One a try. Go to peppershock.com slash offers and select the link there. So tell me about a time that you've helped a client through this process that you're talking about. Like, give me an example of something that you've done with, with a company before to kind of take them through this whole process. And, and what, what, what were the results? Uh, sure. Um, I, you know, I worked on, I've worked on a number of different projects with, uh, you know, different organizations and groups over time. One of them that sticks out to me um, is recently I worked on an advertising campaign and the advertising campaign had two very specific targets. And um, so we were able to uh, do some research upfront about the two particular targets um, and where in the U.S. population the, 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 they were clustered, or at least where they were. And so we did um, the research, kind of more secondary research than primary research around where they were. The primary research was, you know, could we get enough people within these two audience groups to participate. Um, we did a really, really quick couple question poll just to see, you know, do a kind of a f- finger into the wind, as they say. Yeah, yeah. Um, we found out, we found out, you know, two particular things. One was that both of the audiences had above average response rates, even to the survey questions. We thought that, you know, they might be because they were harder targets to reach, that they would be a little bit more reticent to participate participate. And that was not true. So that was, that was good. The second is one of the questions we asked them in the poll was what was the best way to reach them? And what we get, we gave them a number of media channels that they were particularly using. And so they fed us the information and we found out that there were also a couple other platforms that they were spending some time on that, that we hadn't considered. Um, so we, and then we tested a, just a quick you know, blurb about what 
the campaign was going to be um, and got a fairly positive response that, yeah, that, that would resonate with me or whatever. We ran the um, we ran the, the Internet or I'm sorry, we ran the Facebook ad and we ra- ran the um, YouTube ad in six markets. Um, and in less than uh, 35 days, we got 16 million impressions and 8 million video completes. Um, so, wow. The, 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 yeah. And, and we were very happy about that. And what yeah. the, there were a couple of things that the research revealed to us that I hadn't mentioned earlier. One of the things that the research revealed to us was that um, 15 seconds was the absolute maximum that we would have time with, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, for somebody watching the video. So we knew that we had to do something within that 15 seconds. Um, and that helped us not only streamline the message, but also get right to the point on mm-hmm. that. And I think that helped in we terms capture of the their overall. attention right away. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It, 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 it really, really helped, I think, with video completion. And to be very candid about it, the fact that we got a 50% video completion rate was a little shocking to us because yeah. that, that, you know, that was a little bit, I mean, we, we were expecting, you know, lower mm-hmm. and had conditioned our client to that. Um, the second was, is that, or the, one of the other insights that we found out from the research was we knew where they, if, if they weren't watching or completing the video, where they were terminating and that data helped us. And we knew that, you know, for example, most of the people were terminating at about eight seconds. So we knew that at least up front, the, the message, the, the first part of the message was seen. Um, and that helped us, you know, at least say, okay, you know, so even having that ability to measure, you know, when somebody terminated from the ad, um, but it was, it was, you know, for us, it was great to see the numbers hold steady through the entire 35 days of the campaign across the different states. I mean, we would see a little bit of movement here or there, um, you know, but nothing major, but it was, it was great that we had the polling data up front with the two audiences to at least get the litmus test to say, okay, I think we're on to something here. And so, so the campaign, basically we finished up at the end of August, right before Labor Day, the campaign ran, um, you know, from about the end of July through the end of August. Um, Mm -hmm. And the the initial research we had done was just right at the end of June. So all summer months, right? Yeah. Even the summer months. I mean, that was good. That was really good. Yeah, exactly. And and, people are camping and and whatever, right? Vacation, (laughs) you know, that's great. And and, well, we had, we had this joke that, um, you know, in, in one of the States, it was very, there there, it was, it's a, res, you know, a lot of resorts. And, um, we said it must've rained that day because we saw a jump in the traffic, uh, you know, that people were on the, were on the beach or something. You know, that'd be, that'd be something to test to see, like go back in the, yeah. the, you know, almanac and see if it did. Exactly. Oh, but, but, interesting. but, but to your point, Ray, I think, I mean, it, you know, um, you, you can never underestimate just something as simple as that or something as simple as an event that was happening at a particular time um you know we knew that in you know in in august in particular um we had uh two of the six states had state fairs so we knew that you know there, there, we could have had a bump because of you know some of the the the, uh, the geofencing that was in part of it but but generally you know the fact that we got 16 million impressions and 8 million but we used that that initial market research to to help craft that um, I think really it, it was a good combination of you know quantitative and then on the back end here quantitative plus qualitative data 
So Right, right. And then you can make your decisions based on what you gathered. And then it's, you know, then you're not just wasting money in hopes that something might work, right? Right, exactly. And, and you know, that's, it's interesting. And that's one of the words that keeps coming into, um, into the, I guess, nomenclature of, of even the data collection people is that there is um, eco waste in having these, you know, impressions that, that go nowhere. Right. And, and you think about it and, and, you know, obviously with the ability to target and all the different metrics that are coming out from the different platforms, um, you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm beginning to fear at least is that we have so much data that, that we are defaulting to efficiency versus effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that, yeah, we may have hit our target. We may have done this, but did, do we actually have that next level result? You know, did, yeah. did we get the action that we needed to come from it? Um, you know, and I think that, um, you know, sometimes uh, the, the science or the data science is ahead of where we are in regard to both our ability to make decisions, but also our ability to interpret the data. Um, and so, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll def- you know, we're behind, so we'll default to the behind position versus maybe experimenting with the future position. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about some of the tools and technology that you now have access to that you use in, in helping collect and then interpret. I think every marketer out there is trying to find the best tool for the best thing. And I'm just curious, what are some yep. of the what are some of the resources and tools that you use on a regular you know, it's an excellent question, Ray. And I think if if I were in, you know, the position of, of you know, one of your listeners, um, I, I would kind of just get on a whiteboard and just draw like big buckets of data. So for example, that there's a lot of secondary data out there that's really interesting. So for example, you know, a company called NetBase Quid, and you've got Coros, and you've got, you know, all these different social media monitoring tools that, that are very, very good. Um, they some of them are stronger in certain areas than others, but you know there there are some really good um, uh, data collectors and data aggregators out there, and and you know I think it's just really deciding what it is you want to uh, what you need from that. The second part of it is the is how that data gets reported, and some of the um, the secondary data doesn't necessarily get into those data visualization tools. And so sometimes, you know, you have to buy or get a license for a data visualization, um, you know, which basically takes the data and puts it into dashboards and, mm-hmm. and things along those lines. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the second step of it. From a, a, from a research and, and polling perspective, there are so many different software packages out there now that allow you to do it yourself. Um, and, you know, it, that ranges from, you know, companies like SurveyMonkey all the way down to other smaller companies that, that are even very focused in on a particular industry group um, and have been able to, to create a, a market for a particular, um, say, industry group or a particular set of titles. And then, you know, you'd be able to research with those titles. So IT decision makers, for example. Um, but, but those DIY tools are, are plentiful. They're out there. They're getting better all the time. Um, what, is, what is not getting better in that, though, is um, how people ask questions. And also, sometimes there's an issue with the same people taking surveys over and over and over. Is there a bias because somebody's in there? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, the market research industry um, went through just two years of incredible 
incredible growth because of COVID, mm -hmm. because everything kind of shifted and you had to figure that out. So a lot of the larger market research companies have acquired smaller research companies. So there's kind of now this you know middle gap where there's the big guys and a lot of a lot of big guys, and then there's a lot of small guys, but they're not a lot of middle tier in between. And and oftentimes you know, that, that's the, the middle tier is where some of the, the, the fun happens. So, you know, from that standpoint, and then you've got this, you know, the, the Google analytics and the Facebook um, meta reporting, mm -hmm. and, you know, each of the platforms that you are able to use have, you know, packages that, that go along with the data collection so that you can, you know, tap into it. So those are probably the big five silos that most marketing people are coming over. And then you've got the actual marketing um, tools themselves that help do, you know, measure website traffic and who's registering for this and that. So you've got that, that other bucket over there. Um, and that is evolving as well. So, um, you know, I think all, all boats are rising at the same time and maybe not as evenly as, as we would hope, but, um, the, the, I think what, what I see is the big gap right now is not necessarily in the data collection itself. It's in the, ability to learn how to do the data interpretation um, and, and, and how to begin to assign um, more accurate values to the data that you're getting um, and not, for example, either projecting something on or onto the data or um, creating a narrative around the data that fits something that already exists. I think sometimes we, you know, we try to we, we create the narrative first and then go try to find the statistics to support it versus doing this, the research first and then building the narrative out of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, okay. So we'll, we'll wrap up here, but a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, I have, a, I also have a lot of students that listen to, to our podcast. So um, I always like to, to kind of dig in a little bit. What, what advice would you give to a, you know, student that's going to graduate maybe this coming year, next year, getting into this kind of industry, what would you, what, what would you tell them? That's a great question. And uh, I would tell them three particular things. One is that um, there is a very, very big, but unadvertised need for data analysts and data scientists and people that can actually work with data sets. Um, and one of the bad things about the job market is, or, or one, I shouldn't say the job market about some of the job descriptions is that they make it sound like you need a PhD in you know, data science when you actually really don't. So if you're comfortable and, and can work with data, um, I, my advice would be to, you know, at least apply for those that sound, they might sound maybe a, a little above by a level or two, but, but don't be afraid to apply because I think that the data skills are I mean, they're in such, such demand. Um, the second is that on your resume and on, you know, on, especially on LinkedIn, you know, use, make sure that you use words like, you know, data analyst and data science and data, you know, that, that, that really kind of signal that that's the way to go market research even, um, you know, and I, I think that um, there are uh, some, some good, you know, keywords that, that, um, really help, you know, polling happens to be one of them if, mm -hmm. if that's the route you want to go. Um, but it would, it gets you into a different ecosystem in regard to that. Um, the third is that in most of the market research firms, especially I would say the top 50 um, are always looking for people, entry-level people to come in and start and to work with data. So I, I don't think um, it's going to be a huge difficulty finding open positions, especially in 
the market research area if that's the way you want to go. If you want to go to, <coughs> excuse me, more into corporate, um, that's a little bit more dicey only because I think that the job descriptions are a little vaguer in regard to some of the specific data roles that you might have. Um, the, the last advice, piece of advice I would give is that if you can have a you know, one or two or a couple case studies that you can at least show how you worked with data in a way that was constructive and that led to a decision. And it doesn't necessarily be, mean that you have to do A to Z, but mm -hmm. it does mean that you actually were participating in it. Because um, I, I can tell you that that, that alone is going to make people stand out um, because it's, it's, it's such a practical and, and necessary skill for um, for either side, whether it's on the data analysis side or whether it's on the data collection side. So anything that, that you've done, you know, please, I mean, just promote it as much as you can because it, it does make sense uh, or it does help. Um, you know, even if it was an internship working with, um, you know, a company where you were working on data sets and things, th those things are invaluable. And I think it, it if it does, if it does nothing, at least it gets conversations started in places that, that you might not have imagined before. Right, right. And where do you get current resources, information? Or do you belong to some associations? Maybe share a little bit about, you know, just industry, where that all comes from for you to stay on top of everything. Yeah, I mean, I, it's, um, from an association standpoint, um, I, I follow a couple, but I don't necessarily belong to many. Um, and, and, you know, when it was actually in the market research and polling industry, you know, it, it was a little bit more um, intense because you had to, you know, have some level of accreditation. But um, where I find a lot of information is the different groups on LinkedIn, the professional groups on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. um, and there's, you know, uh, there are a lot of really good, I guess, quasi associations on there where there's a lot of good information. Um, I happen to be a newsletter junkie. Um, so, you know, for example, um, I, I probably get 20 newsletters in my inbox and some of them range from e-consultancy to American marketing association to, and, and a lot of them have, you know, great free newsletters. Um, there are several that I, you know, I pay for as, as well to get the uh, premium content. Um, but I find that there's a lot of, um, self-learning or, or tools for self-learning like that, that are uh, available that, that, um, and then, you know, even at just um, attending interesting uh, uh, webinars on particular things that, that are relevant there, you know, um, I, I, one of the trends, obviously, and you, I'm sure you get hundreds of these is, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll send you a, a, you know, an Uber Eats lunch coupon and please join us. This, and, and a lot of those are very, very interesting to listen to. Um, and if, if it, for nothing else, just to kind of confirm that you're on the right track or at least see some things. Um, but, you know, I, I, one of the things I prefer is the self-learning side of, you know, whether it's Coursera or whether it's LinkedIn Learning or, or one of the other platforms, um, because it allows me to go at a different pace. Um, mm -hmm. And But I find those very, very valuable because you can refer back to them. Um, and usually there's a robust enough set of information to, uh, to do. One last thing that I would also recommend, and um, a lot of the... Um, business schools and you know, MBA programs have websites where they put out free content and they do webinars and, and things for free. Mm -hmm. um, and those tend to be good um, trend uh, mm -hmm. topic 
areas to look at. Um, you know, some of the content can be a little bit uh, academic, but mm-hmm. um, again, it's it's a it's a great place, and and you'd be interested to see. In, for, in terms of networking, who pops up there. Okay, right. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good information for for all of our listeners, too, because not just our students that are about to get into the, you know, the, the real world, as we call it, but the people listening that have maybe wanted to expand and grow and, and learn more, because it's an ever-learning, ever-changing industry that we always need to continuously stay on top of, for sure. Yeah, so- absolutely. And you know, one last thing because you just jogged my memory. So I, because I, I have, I have three. Co- I have one current student in college and two that have graduated. Right. Um, uh, all three of my kids, yeah, that that well, two of my three kids um, went through. They they stayed kind of in um, uh, like an advertising communications track, and the reason why I think that wound up being good for all of them, um, and including my daughter who's now in in, in college, um, is that. That be, that's kind of the nexus where creative and analytics come together, just like in a marketing position. Mm-hmm. And sometimes working in those agencies, even as an intern, um, it, it helps give you a spatial view of something, uh, whether it's a, a campaign or whether it's a particular topic, or whether it's a particular brand or product. And, and because it tends to be real world, it also tends to be a lot of you know, hand-to-hand uh, and day-to-day learning. So from that standpoint, um, you know, even, even if you're a finance major, it oftentimes is good to to go into an environment like an agency mm-hmm. um, just even for a couple months just because you get to see a much much different um, you get to see how business is done in a, in a communications way which ultimately is going to lead to financial hopefully financial right. prosperity so oh my goodness well Peter thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdoms today uh, how can people reach you if they are interested in learning more from you they can reach me on LinkedIn at uh, Pete Schaefer, P-E-T-E-S-H-A-F-E-R. Um, certainly, they can text me at 202-236-4522, or they can email me at peter at everestcoms.com. Okay. Well, thank you, Peter, again, and thank you for, for your time today. Oh, my pleasure, Ray. It was a lot of fun talking to you. Thank you so much for the great questions. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And for those of you listening, the best thing that you can do for Peter and I is to share this with those you know who need to listen to what he had to say today and subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. And then the very best thing that you can do is give us a review because that's like gold to podcasters. So thank you so much. Yeah. And until next time, everybody, enjoy your marketing journey. Thanks for listening to the Marketing Expedition Podcast. Want to continue the journey? Don't miss out on new episodes. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Wouldn't it be great if there was one place you can go to get all the latest information and tips about marketing and advertising? The Marketing Expedition community is that place. People like you gather in our online community to build relationships with others and find the latest marketing trends, tactics, tools, and technology. We help you build your brand and your bottom line. Start your adventure today. Visit themarketingexpedition.com to find out more.